The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Do you have more black beans from Goya than you can actually eat? Well, we'll have a serving suggestion coming up shortly. To sleep, perchance to dream. Somewhat paradoxically, the more woke we get, the more I find myself fighting vainly the old ennui. It's getting late and dear, your pillow's waiting, sleepy time, gal. You're turning night into day. Sleepy time, gal. Our sleepy time, gal of the week is no contest. Patricia Simon, associate professor of theatre arts at Marymount Manhattan College. No, I had no idea what that is either, but it's a uh, formerly Catholic, seventy-five percent female liberal arts college in New York and Patricia Simon is as I said associate professor of theatre arts and coordinator of its musical theatre program. She's woke as almost everybody who gets cancelled is because those of us who are unwoke are already cancelled, pre-cancelled from academia and all the rest so the only people whose lives you can wreck Uh, your fellow libs. So Professor Simon is woke. She advertises her pronouns. Admittedly, they're not very interesting. She, her. Uh, But what's a gal to do? So a couple of weeks back, she found herself obliged to participate in a discussion on Zoom with students demanding new anti-racism policy. I mean, come on. Wouldn't your heart sink? Is there any bigger yawneroo, any bigger waste of time? It's not a good faith discussion. It's not an honest discussion. It just means for the umpteenth time you've got to sit there and listen to a lot of know-nothings bellowing slogans at you. Uh, indeed, uh, it's not a small uh, reason why our civilizational goose is cooked. It's why we're self-moronizing faster than any society in human history. If you're wondering why China snaffled the world out from under us, well, just think of all the time they have free to discuss something, anything, that matters while we're wasting our time circling the drain in seminars and unconscious bias. You think of all the hours wasted on this kind of rubbish. And even worse, this meeting is on Zoom. I mentioned on Rush the other day that someone in Singapore got given the world's first death sentence via Zoom. I don't know whether the judge put on the traditional black cap uh, to say that uh, I order that you be taken from here to a place of execution and hang by the neck until dead, or whether he was just zooming it in in his pyjamas with a full-bottomed wig on top. But say what you like. Say what you like. At least that Zoom hearing accomplished something. Listening to your solipsistic students do the same old, same old is a lot less fruitful. And in this Zoom hearing, uh uh-oh, Professor Simon's eyelids appeared to droop. And the Marymount Musical Theatre coordinator perhaps drifted off into raptures of what she might have been doing had she not been stuck online with a bunch of whinging wankers, remembering the dreams her young self once had of 
being on Broadway, perhaps playing Lily von Stupp in Blazing Saddles. I'm tired, tired of playing the game, painted a crying shame, I'm so tired. Well, instead of being tired, she's about to be fired. Student Caitlin Gagnon launched a petition demanding the professor's termination. Patricia Simon was sleeping during the town hall meeting that took place on June 29th. This action has only capitalised on a pattern of negligence and disrespect that Patricia Simon has exhibited over and over again in her time as an associate professor and coordinator of the BFA Musical Theatre Programme. Professor Simon has a history of ignoring instances of racism in the form of racial profiling within the programme and enabling the racist and sizist actions and words of the vocal coaches under her jurisdiction, unquote. Yeah, I don't know what the sizest thing's about. I take it that if you're a 400-pound guy with moobs you can hang a hammock off and you want to play Evita, you're all out of luck till that changes. Anyway, 2,000 people have signed this petition to fire Patricia Simon for momentarily closing her eyes. She denied she did so, offering this pathetic non-mitigating circumstance. I was not asleep, as is implied at any point during the meeting. I was looking down or briefly resting my Zoom-weary eyes with my head tilted back, which I must do in order to see my computer screen through my trifocal progressive lenses. I listened with my ears and heart the entire meeting. Yeah, uh, trifocal, trishmocal. That's not going to cut it, is it? What she should have done is said that for today's class, my racist and sizist vocal coaches are going to run you through the following song from Mary Poppins, in which Julie Andrews puts the children to sleep by urging them to stay awake. And to demonstrate my commitment to non-sizist vocal coaching, you may, instead of the title phrase, stay awake, sing Stay Woke. Stay awake, don't rest your head Don't lie down upon your bed While the moon drifts in the skies In the antebellum South, Mary Poppins would, of course, be a mammy, so she'd be singing, Ah, oh, stay awake for dear old mammy! Don't rest your head, honey lamb! I had not considered the racial politics of sleep, but a day or two after Patricia Simon's career imploded, I read the following headline in Teen Vogue. Uh, Black Power Naps is addressing systemic racism in sleep. Quote, Fanny Sosa and Navil da Costa uh, were tired, but it wasn't just any old fatigue. Yes, they experienced a lack of sleep, but they were specifically experiencing a generational fatigue familiar to black people and people of color. 
From this sleeplessness, the two created black power naps. It came from understanding that the American dream is a sleepless one, Sosa said. We inherited this exhaustion. Black Power Naps is an artistic initiative with components including physical installations, zines, an opera and more. But it's also a recognition of the hundreds of years of sleep deprivation that black people and people of colour have experienced as a result of systemic racism. A way to push back against the false stereotype that black people are lazy, and an investigation of the inequitable distribution of rest. Unquote. Now, I confess, the first thing I do when I open my inbox in the morning is have my second cup of coffee and then consider whether I'm just reading a brilliant satire. Naville da Costa, for example, that can't possibly be a real name. Oh, yes, it can. Hello, my name is Neville DaCosta, formerly known as Nivacosta. I am transgender, gender non-conforming, first-generation, Afro-Dominican American, born to my HIV-positive and teenage mother, Jesenia Costa. Okay, I give up. That's the gold medal in the intersectional decathlon. That's Caitlyn Jenner at the Montreal Olympics. That's your breakfast of champions right there. That's why Patricia Simon is screwed. Because there's no point to a theatre class, not just because her students lack the imaginative capacity even to consider playing a character of whom they do not approve, such as Iago or King Lear, uh, but because more and more of us are playing entirely self-invented characters in our own lives. Who needs theatre? I've watched the video of Naville da Costa half a dozen times and I can't tell whether she's a man who's transitioned into a woman or a woman who's transitioned into a man. But I tell you, he or she is some kind of genius. You know the Langston Hughes poem, A Dream Deferred, from the Harlem Renaissance? It's overquoted, so I got a bit bored with it. But generally, it's assumed... Uh, to be about the American dream because the Negro was cut out of that deal in 1776, so it's a dream deferred. But Neville de Costa says, no, no, for the black man, the dream is always deferred because of the systemic racism of sleep. This is Harlem, a poem by Langston Hughes written in 1932, a very powerful time in black American insurgents. Dream is seen here as aspiration, an American dream. But what if Langston was really, literally asking us, how can we dream when we don't sleep? As I said, I give up. Evelyn Walker didn't match this. Sleep is just the ultimate white privilege. But fortunately, Naville da Costa and Fanny Sosa have created black power naps, which I think would actually have been better if it had been called Black Naps Matter. Uh, they've created Black Naps Matter, Black Power Naps, just to deal with it. Naville and I works focuses in developing pleasurable methodologies using vibrational and sonic therapy, movement practices to liberate the core, transformational social justice publication, and consultations. Lack of sleep is one critical way capitalism crosses negatively and for many fatally with each of our lives. Black Power Naps is an urban proposition to mobilize city governments and cultural institutions to structurally support and sustain spaces of decriminalized rest and leisure. And just to tie it all together, this is also the week that American politics became literally a hill of beans. Uh, senior advisor um, to uh, the president, Ivanka Trump, is facing backlash and is potentially in violation of the ethics law 
after she shared a photo endorsing Goya black beans on her social media accounts. Yesterday, the president's daughter posted Goya food slogan. If it's Goya, it has to be good in both English and Spanish, alongside a smiling photo of herself holding the can of beans. So now black people are getting doubly screwed. First, the white plantation owner imposed his sleep deprivation techniques on the black man. Now crazed Trump supporters are buying up all the black beans the black man needs to sleep in. Black bean bed, designed with panic attacks in mind, it is a pool filled with two tons of dry black beans, heavy blankets and cushions, with hanging fresh herbs and a space blanket canopy. Thank you and good night. That's easy for us white privilege types to say. Before I leave the subject of Patricia Simon, it isn't really a small thing when 2,000 people want to destroy the life of someone because her eyelids fluttered during the usual coma-inducing blather on racism. If you really have so little feeling for your fellow human being, and in a drama class too, that you'd ruin her for that, what else might you do? Brian from Minneapolis uh, left a comment uh, around these parts the other day wondering why more people weren't outraged by the fatal shooting of a 24-year-old Indiana woman, Jessica Doty Whitaker, for making the mistake of saying all lives matter to the wrong person. He shot her. She leaves a three-year-old son. The measure of a functioning society is how easy it is to insulate yourself from the non-functioning, dysfunctional parts. It's getting harder in America. And so you can be leaving a restaurant and walking back to a car park just a block further away than you should have. And instead of Langston Hughes' dream deferred, you're in a nightmare express check-in. But I take it even in the crazy times, the number of people prepared to put a bullet in the back of a 24-year-old mom is comparatively small. What's more disturbing is the number of people prepared to gloat and feast over such deaths. As soon as Ms. Whittaker's murder made the papers, there was a stampede to her Facebook page to crow. As one commenter, Angel Angel, so that's doubly angelic, Angel Angel wrote, I can't feel bad for a racist who used a racial slur. Now you'll have plenty of time to think about your horrible actions. As Josh Long added, can't feel bad for you when you used a racial slur and acting an effing fool. As Caitlin May McMahon, remember these names. People are leaving their real names. Uh, as they gloat over the death of this woman. Josh Long, Caitlin May McMahon. Uh, Miss McMahon's comment is accompanied by an amusing gif. Because that's, that's really the appropriate response to a murder, isn't it? A funny gif. Oh, I'm sorry. Did someone get what they effing deserve, says Caitlin May McMahon. Uh, as another commenter made a point of telling the dead woman's mother... 
I got some bad news for you, Arlene. You are the one responsible for raising your daughter to hang out with racists. In McAllen, Texas, on Saturday night, two police officers were killed in an ambush. Edelmiro Gauza Jr. and Ishmael Chavez. Savannah Benavides... Uh, for whom Officer Chavez served as a surrogate father, posted on Twitter a short, sweet remembrance of the only dad she ever knew. Now, Mr. Chavez was 39, so you do the math here. Savannah isn't that old. In fact, she's 16 and she's grieving. Quote, you're an amazing man, and anyone who ever came across you knew that. I'm going to miss you so much. You died doing what you loved most. You died a hero. I love you, Daddy. See you soon. Blue Lives Matter. Savannah has had to delete that tweet because of what followed. You didn't have to use a racist hashtag, wrote one commenter. The fact that almost all these replies are by old bitter white people who have nothing else better to do. Blue Lives Matter was literally created in response to and to undermine Black Lives Matter, another person wrote. There's no other connotation. Well, at least your pops is a good cop now. Six feet in the dirt where he can't hurt nobody. One cop down, many more to go. That's another comment. And of course, uh, dozens of Twitter responders using ACAB, uh, which means all cops are bastards. Uh, as I said, Savannah is 16 years old. Who does this to a teenage girl mourning a murdered father? Well, Americans do. Your fellow citizens do. Maybe your neighbours, co-workers. Because this is where wokeness and Black Lives Matter and all the other garbage leads. While the wankers of Conservative Inc., spent the last four decades focused on nothing that mattered, the American Academy has reared monsters and taught them to dehumanise half the people with whom they share the public space. And dehumanisation is, of course, a necessary prelude to killing your fellow man. You can check in a zillion places from Germany to Cam Cambodia. Um, I'd cite all kinds of other historical examples, but history has been abolished, so who cares? On page 361 of my book, The Undocumented Mark Stein, I quote the words of the French philosopher Alain Finkelkraut. The lofty idea of the war on racism is gradually turning into a hideously false ideology, he says. And this anti-racism will be for the 21st century what communism was for the 20th century, a source of violence. He's right. And that moment is upon us. And if Black Lives Matter is the answer to anything, then the cure is worse than the disease. Escape the quarantine by delving into fantastic fiction chosen and read by Mark Stein himself in Stein's Tales for Our Time. Thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, romance. Tales that transcend genre. Everything from classics to titles hidden in the upper shelves. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the full catalog of nearly three dozen Tales for Our Time. Hear them all by going to www.steinonline.com tfot. The NFL's Washington Redskins are changing the team name and the team's Native American logo, a name and a logo many found offensive. The Mark Stein Show presents 
Hey, leader, strike down the brand. 1933. Founded by George Preston Marshall. After almost nine decades, they're down and done, the Washington Redskins. Redskins, ha! Hail victory over the Redskins. The Wokeskins have their scalp. It took the death of a black man on a Minneapolis street to kill a near-century-old brand in Washington, D.C., mainly thanks to woke corporations like Amazon, Nike, Target, Walmart, FedEx, declaring the team persona non grata. So they're going to change the name and the logo and presumably the National Football League's oldest fight song too. There's no fight in them anymore. As listeners know, because it's about my biggest difference with Rush on the radio, as uh, he and I talked about in the Limbaugh letter once, um, I've got no use for most contemporary big-time sports in America because it's all so corporate and bland and insipid and disconnected from anything real. I didn't think it would be possible to make it any worse. Uh, but then they decided that the big bucks were in taking a knee and introducing race-specific national anthems. God rot the lot of them. But it wasn't always like that. And when you kiss off a 90-year-old brand and its logo and its theme song, it's worth remembering the kind of quirky, inspired, iconoclastic, yes, racist, deeply flawed human being it takes to come up with something like that, as opposed to the no-name committee members it takes to destroy it. Along with the team name, the name of its founder was recently removed from the Redskins' ring of fame and his statue taken down from RFK Stadium after it was vandalised. Uh, the statue, that is, not RFK Stadium. Monuments to the Kennedys seem to be uniquely immune to the present ructions. But as uh, toweringly butch President Macron explained to the marching morons, every statue is part of our history, including the racist one. So you can take down the statue to George Preston Marshall, but without him there'd be no team, there'd be no brand, there'd be nothing for the bland, insipid, appeasing suits to destroy. Marshall founded the team in Boston in uh, 1932, and because they played at Braves Field, home of the Boston Braves baseball team, uh, he called them the Boston Braves football team. The next year, they moved to another baseball field, Fenway Park, home of the Red Sox. Red Sox. Uh, 
So he changed the name to the Redskins. Uh, Boston wasn't much of a football town, so in 1937 he moved them south to the national capital under the name they would hold until this week, the Washington Redskins. The NFL was less popular than college football back then, and Marshall's brilliantly simple idea was to make a Redskins game more like a college game. He introduced halftime shows and signed up a society band leader, Barney Breeskin, to head up the NFL's first marching band. And after every touchdown, they would play the NFL's first fight song. Swamp em, we will take a big score. Read em, weep em, touchdown, we want heap more. When Marshall decided he wanted his team to have a song, he had his band leader, Barney Breeskin, write the tune, and he got his wife, Corinne Griffith, uh, to write the words. Miss Griffith had been a big star in silent pictures, and not just a star... Uh, but a, a producer too. Hey, what, what do you what do you mean? They're strong women controlling their careers and serving in executive capacities in 1920s Hollywood. I thought they didn't have anything like that till Sandra Bullock and Halle Berry came along. Yeah, gee, it's odd that, isn't it? It's almost like everything they tell us is total bollocks. Anyway, talkies came in, and the critics thought her voice was a bit nasal. And she had all the money she'd ever need, so she decided to retire. Here's Corinne Griffith bringing that nasal quality to Jerome Kern's lovely ballad in her final Hollywood starring role, 1930, the film Back Pay. They didn't believe me Your lips, your eyes, your pretty hair Are in a cross beyond compare you're the loveliest thing that one could see. And when I tell them, oh, I certainly am going to tell them that you're the boy whose girl one day I'll be. They'll never be. Very nice, but it's no hail to the Redskins, is it? Corinne Griffith was good for the team, but George Preston Marshall wasn't the easiest guy. Her standard joke after the Second World War was that he was the Marshall without a plan. That's uh, a bit unfair. His plan was that the Redskins should be not just Washington's team, but the South's team. They were the only NFL franchise south of the Mason-Dixon line, and he intended to keep it that way. So in 1960, when Clint Murchison was trying to get the Dallas Cowboys in as an expansion team, Marshall objected. He'd just divorced Corinne, and he'd fallen out with Barney Breeskin. And so he was shocked to find that Murchison 
had somehow acquired the publishing rights to their song, Hail to the Redskins, and was threatening to withhold the song from the team. And so because he understood the value of Hail to the Redskins to his brand, Marshall caved and allowed a second team from the South to join the NFL. He would be astonished that this week the Redskins just dumped the name without apparently even giving a thought to the future of their 83-year-old fight song. Marshall was a believer in racial segregation. He said he'd introduced Negro players to the Washington Redskins when they had whites in the Harlem Globetrotters. So the Redskins were the last team to be integrated, not until 1962. But his views were not untypical, and indeed they had the support of the genius jurists of America's totally supreme Supreme Court, which held for three quarters of a century that the government had no right to prohibit discrimination in private business. Corinne Griffith, meanwhile, remarried uh, to a much younger man. They split after two months, and when he came looking for big bucks alimony in the divorce trial, she adopted the unusual legal defence of claiming to be an entirely different person from the one everybody thought she was. Quote, I am Mary Griffith, her twin sister. Let me explain. She, Corinne, was starring in a film in Mexico in 1920. She was stricken by a mysterious local malady and died suddenly at age 24. Mr. Adolf Zucker, head of Paramount, called me in person and told me I must save the day. A cancellation of the picture would be a disaster for the studio. He told me what had happened. I cried and cried. He said I must pull myself together. There was a million dollars in it if I would become my sister. I had never acted and didn't want to act, but I couldn't resist the money, and I felt Corinne would want me to help. So I went to Mexico and took over, and nobody knew the difference. From then on, I was Corinne Griffith. Unquote. Okay, I know what you're thinking. This chick is bonkers. Erasing the previous 45 years and claiming to be a mythical twin sister. But actually, isn't that what her football team just did this week? Erasing the previous 87 years and yet claiming that there's some as yet unnamed redskin twin sister that will nevertheless carry on the legacy and you'll never notice the difference. I miss the America that produced people like Corinne Griffith, said to be the most beautiful of all silent screen sirens, yet also a canny producer, a real estate investor who bought Beverly Hills when it was Hills, a woman who gave over 500 speeches arguing against the income tax and for the repeal of the 16th Amendment, the author not only of Hail to the Redskins, but of novels, short stories, recipe books, books on foot Ball and antiquing, and a memoir of her childhood in Texarkana called Popper's Delicate Condition, which they made into a film with Jackie Gleason. So indirectly, we have Corinne Griffith to thank for this Kahn and Van Heusen Oscar-winning song. Call me irresponsible Call me Growing undependable too 
Call them irresponsible. Call them unreliable. Just don't call them the Washington Redskins. Hail to the no-names and strike down the brand. And just as a postscript to George Preston Marshall and Corinne Griffith, Mr. Marshall's successor as owner of the team is a man called Daniel Snyder. Fifteen female employees of the Redskins have now alleged sexual harassment and abuse at the hands of Mr. Snyder's inner circle. So they got rid of the racism uh, just to deflect from the misogyny. Maybe they can be the Washington Me Too's. Or the Washington Weinsteins. Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Midwestern Tim, a first month founding member of the Mark Stein Club from uh, the American uh, Midwest, indeed, from a town. Uh, that will be changing its name any day now. It's so racist, that doesn't narrow it down much, does it? Anyway, Midwestern Tim writes, Mark, what do you make of David Horowitz's claim that Trump is going to win in a landslide this election? One more, are you a fan of George Gilder? He has a decidedly libertarian techie bent when it comes to immigration. There's nothing actually libertarian or techie about being in favour of immigration, but uh, let's let's put that aside. He does have a point, says Tim, but then again, so do you. Is there a happy medium to be had in keeping immigration, how did they used to say, safe, legal and rare? Oh, and for our benefit. Uh, well, I'll answer that second part first, Tim. I'm not a fan of George Gilder, and it's strictly personal. 20 years ago, I used to write for the American Spectator under Bob Tyrrell, uh, R. Emmett Tyrrell Jr. And Bob sold the magazine to George Gilder, who claimed to be a fan of it. But he turned it into something that looked like an airline magazine. And he put in this new editor, whom Bob described to me as Captain Quig. And the new editor did such a number on my first column that I yanked it and never returned to the magazine. I would have complained directly to George Gilder, but the terrible editor's name was... Josh Gilder. So we had a bit of a uh, Jared Kushner type situation there. Uh, and I wasn't going to get anywhere objecting to family members. And between them, the Gilders did such a terrible job on the American Spectator that Bob Tyrrell wound up buying it back and putting on the next front cover, now under old management. Anyway, as I said, that's uh, strictly personal. But believe me, Tim, if you'd had your prose edited by Josh Gilder, you would never want to hear the name Gilder again. As to David Horowitz's claim that Trump is going to win in a landslide this election, uh, oh, come on, who the hell knows? Even in a normal year. The polls mean nothing until September, so that's two months from now. Uh, well, two months ago, Columbus and Lincoln were still on their plinths and police stations in Minneapolis and Seattle weren't burnt out shells. And two months before that, you could still go to a concert or a movie or go to Walmart without a mask. And two months before that, that's how uh, whiplash this year has been. Two months before that, the biggest thing supposedly in the media was what some striped pants nincompoop from Foggy Bottom with his bow tie done up too tight thought about some phone call about Ukraine. Uh, 
So given that this is a year of non-stop October surprises, I would bet on at least a couple more before polls open on November 3rd, and how they intersect with all the other October surprises from March, April, May, June, July, we don't know. And then we have what pre-virus, pre-lockdown, pre-looting would have been the most significant fact about this election, which is that the Democrats have nominated a brain-dead husk who can't be let out on the stump. Uh, so the DNC has had to do a deal with Chairman Xi to keep cranking up the COVID uh, whenever it subsides and calls arise for Joe Biden to come out of his basement or at least hold up a recent newspaper to prove he's still alive. But all that said, a landslide would require all kinds of people, from that Vermont school teacher kicked out of her job for being insufficiently pro-BLM, to all the wishy-washy signers of that open letter in Harper's doing the whole plague on both your houses routine, or pretending to, it would require all kinds of people, including some uh, we've talked about earlier in this show, to overcome their distaste and vote for the side that doesn't want to destroy their lives, which shouldn't be difficult but actually is. Distaste is quite a powerful force, it turns out. Um, and so the conversion, even though it would be in their own self-interest, I don't see a lot of evidence to it, uh, of it. So right now, I would say, uh, I disagree with David, he's a very smart guy, but I would say right now, uh, we're in for the usual kind of Republican victory that we've gotten used to, over this century, which is a narrow electoral college victory for Trump on November 3rd. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. To come back to where we came in and that nice liberal theatre professor facing the destruction of her career because she disrespected her students by appearing to doze off during some interminable Zoom discussion. When the world is woke, there's a lot to be said for sleep, deep sleep, oblivion, where AOC and Ilan Omar and Chairman Xi and Justin Trudeau and Anthony Fauci cannot penetrate. And when the world is as insanely woke as it is right now, you may find sleep harder to come by. Uh, this poem actually came to its author in a dream, and that would be impressive were it the rhyme of the ancient mariner, but in fact it's just a quatrain, four lines, but a truly cracking quatrain published posthumously in 1939 by the Shropshire lad himself, A.E. Houseman. When the bells jostle in the tower, the hollow night amid, then on my tongue the taste is sour, of all I ever did. That closing couplet is quite something, and there are multiple interpretations of what's going on there. But when I first read it, I thought it was just about sleeplessness. Somewhere the distant church bells have struck midnight. You're lying there ready for sleep, but sleep doesn't come. You're awake. You're alert to every nocturnal rustle from the flora and fauna, and the day you're ready to kiss off 
insists on lying heavy on you. On my tongue the taste is sour of all I ever did. Because when you want to sleep but you can't, the taste is sour. You think of what you should have said in that day's job interview. The witty riposte you might have delivered at dinner. The better deal you might have got from the car dealer. The girl who almost kind of sort of was inviting you to ask her to a movie but you didn't say the right thing and the moment passed. On my tongue... The taste is sour of all I ever did. That's how it feels at two in the morning. And it's not just personal now. The taste is sour in a more general sense, don't you find? The first half of 2020 has been the weirdest time as the world, or at least the bulk of our assumptions about it, is unravelling everywhere you look. So here's Keats. In that very productive year of just over two centuries ago, 1819, with a sonnet on sleeplessness, complete with a uh, little opium illusion for those of you who dig the drug fiend scene. Um, but as with A.E. Houseman, the taste of the day that won't quite end is sour on his tongue, and he wants soothest sleep to close his oh-so-willing eyes. By John Keats, A Sonnet to Sleep. O oh, soft embalmer of the still midnight, shutting with careful fingers and benign, our gloom-pleased eyes, embowered from the light, enshaded in forgetfulness divine. O oh, soothest sleep, if it so please thee, close in midst of this thine hymn my willing eyes, or wait the amen, ere thy poppy throws around my bed its lulling charities. Then save me, or the passed day will shine upon my pillow, breeding many woes. Save me from curious conscience, that still lords its strength for darkness, burrowing like a mole. Turn the key deftly in the oiled wards and seal the hushed casket of my soul. A poem from Me to You by John Keats, a sonnet to sleep. If you enjoy our weekly poetry rendezvous, do check out last weekend's Sunday Poems Summer Special. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, certainly some listeners did. If you enjoy our last call, normally in this spot, we'll have a last call special this Sunday. I hope the past day or past week does not shine upon your pillow, breeding many woes this weekend. So to back you up, Here's a chap born uh, 350 years ago this weekend, uh, July 19th, 1670. Uh, Richard Leverage was what we'd now call a singer-songwriter. That's to say he was a leading bass singer uh, with the United Company uh, in Drury Lane and uh, other similar uh, musical theatre ventures. And he was also a composer of uh, Baroque music. And one of his compositions is still played today. The original words are by Henry Fielding, who wrote uh, Tom Jones. 
but never heard back from him. I'm joking. I mean, Tom Jones, the novel, not the tight trousered bellowing boy. Eh? Um, anyway, Henry Fielding wrote this for his uh, Grub Street Opera, uh, the original words. And shortly thereafter, Richard Leverage wrote a much better tune for those words. And if you're a soldier of the Queen, you'll know this. I think almost every Canadian military unit, also the uh, Royal Navy, Royal Artillery regiments throughout the Commonwealth, use this as the entry music for officers' mess dinners. But if you're a US veteran, uh, you may know it too, because they also play it at US Marine Corps dinners, for example. Uh, George Washington knew it. So we should probably ban it. The words contrast the sturdy fare of an English dinner table with the decadent ragout of the French, who, of course, uh, sneeringly call the English les roses beef. Happy 350th birthday to its composer, Richard Leverage. Stay safe, stay free, get some sleep, get some roast beef. When mighty roast beef was the Englishman's food, it ennobled our brains and enriched our blood Our soldiers were brave and our courtiers were good Oh, the roast beef of old England And old English roast beef But since we have learned from all vaporing France To eat their ragouts as well as to dance We're fed up with nothing but vain complaisance Oh, the roast beef of old England and old English roast beef. Our fathers of old were robust, out and strong, and kept open house with good cheer all day long, which made their plump tenants rejoice in this song. Oh, the roast beef of old England and old English roast beef. In those days if fleet did presume on the main They seldom or never return back again As witness the vaulting armada of Spain Oh, the roast beef of old England And old English roast beef when good Queen Elizabeth sat on the throne, ere coffee or tea or such slip-slops were known, the world was in terror if ere she did frown. Oh, the roast beef of old England, and old English roast beef. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.